Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take these words that have just been read to us, words written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us to receive them, help us to believe them, help us to treasure them and trust them and live by them, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. On June 23rd, 1963, during a freedom rally in Detroit, Michigan, Martin Luther King Jr. said, there are some things so dear some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not yet discovered something that he is willing to die for, he is not yet fit to live. What are you living for? What are you willing to die for? The Apostle Paul makes it really clear. To live is Christ. To die is Gain to, to honor Christ in his body was Paul's aim, whether it be in life or in death. We're in a series called Joy Inside. And one of the keys to living a life filled with joy, regardless of our circumstances, is the key to joy is this. It's finding something worth dying for. It's finding something so valuable that you treasure it more than your own life. Paul had found it. He knew that he had something in Christ that could never be taken away from him. Even death couldn't take it away from him. And that's why Paul was so filled with joy. The title for today's message is To Live is Christ. We're going to be looking at Paul's words here to the church at Philippi. He begins in verse 12 by saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul wants to talk to them about what happened to him. He knows what happened to him. The church at Philippi knows what happened to him, but we, the reader, don't necessarily know what happened to him. Well, in Acts chapter 21, after Paul's third missionary journey, after he went back and visited Philippi a couple of times, he goes to Jerusalem. And when he's in the temple, a mob surrounds him and starts beating him. The Roman tribune, who's the military leader in that area, he comes running to the temple courts and disperses the crowd and arrests Paul, really for Paul's own safety. Paul gets arrested. And as he's being hauled off into the Roman barracks, Paul asks for permission to speak to the crowd. And so there on the steps, Paul shares his testimony. He shares the gospel with the very people that were trying to kill him. But again, another riot almost begins. Paul gets taken into, uh, into prison and the tribune decides to call a trial. So he brings in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have a trial. That gets violent as well. More days go by. The Jewish leaders come up with this plan. They request another trial, but at a different location. They want there to be an inmate transfer. And their plan is that they're gonna ambush Paul while he's moving from one place to the other and kill him and they'll be done with him once and for all. But providentially, Paul's nephew finds out about it, tells Paul, Paul tells the Tribune. The Tribune says, you know what, enough of this. 
And so the Tribune goes to a higher court. He goes to the governor, Felix. He's now in the sandals that used to be filled by Pontius Pilate. And so Paul gets transferred up by military motorcade, pretty much, up to Caesarea. And there's another trial. The Sanhedrin goes up there as well. And that doesn't get anywhere. And then two years go by where Governor Felix is really just waiting for a bribe. Paul is caught in this corrupt and slow-moving legal system. Then Felix gets replaced by another governor named Festus and, and there's another trial the Sanhedrin comes back and the the accusations against Paul don't make any sense they're so contradictory and Paul says you know what enough is enough I appeal to Caesar I'm a Roman citizen I want to stand before the Roman emperor he was entitled to request that so Festus says fine in the next chapter, King Agrippa, who, who was an, a, a descendant of King Herod, he comes for a visit. Paul gets to share the gospel with him as well. So Paul has now shared the gospel with a huge crowd. He shared the gospel with, um, with two governors and now King Agrippa. Acts 27, he gets on a boat, he heads for Rome. Acts 28, uh, after being shipwrecked, he's delayed for three months on the island of Malta. When you get to Acts chapter 28, he finally arrives in Rome. And uh, in Acts 28, verse 16, it says, When we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So Paul is under house arrest. And then it says in Acts 28, 30 and 31, this is how the book of Acts ends. It says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, Paul doesn't say specifically where he is when he's writing the letter to the church at Philippians, but it's most likely while he's in Rome, he mentions Caesar's household later on uh, in chapter 4. He talks about the, the Roman imperial guard hearing the gospel. Most likely, he is in Rome under house arrest. So when he says, what has happened to me, that's what he's uh, talking about. Now, how did Paul find joy in light of what has happened to him, in light of what he's up against and what he's facing? Here's the first thing. If you're taking notes today, under the theme of to live is Christ, to live is Christ means joyful suffering for the gospel of Jesus joyful suffering for the gospel of Jesus. Paul was suffering. He had, he's been in, in prison now for well over two years, and, and he's, he has no privacy. He has a Roman soldier that is living with him, chained to him most likely all of the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He is suffering for the sake of the gospel, and yet he is doing it joyfully. Because look what he says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me in verse 12 has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is in chains, but the gospel cannot be chained. Paul is in prison, but you can't keep the gospel from going out. The gospel continued to advance. He's already preached to two governors in the Tribune and King Agrippa and large crowds. And Paul is still seeing, even while he's in prison, he is still seeing the gospel advance. He describes how it's happening in two ways. Here's the first one. In verse 13, he says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So the whole imperial guard is, has now heard the gospel. Why? Well, it wasn't always the same soldier that would have been uh, watching and guarding Paul each and every day. No, they would have been on a rotation. They would have had to go home or go on other duties. So multiple soldiers were, were spending time with Paul and Paul would have been sharing the gospel with them. 
And they would have overheard these conversations of people that came to visit him. They would have observed Paul's courage in the face of danger. They would have observed his kindness. They would have observed the way that he cared about the people that came to visit him. They would have observed that he even cared about them as soldiers, as individuals. You see, here's the amazing thing. The gospel continued to advance and move forward and go out even when Paul wasn't allowed to go out. You see, Roman soldiers don't normally go to Jewish synagogues. They don't normally listen to religious lectures put on by an obscure person from the far reaches of the Roman Empire in Judea. That really wouldn't concern them, but in the providence of God, God put Paul in this place so that the whole imperial guard could learn about who Jesus is and what he came to do and how that could transform their life. And for that, Paul rejoices. He's so glad because because he wouldn't have, have pictured it happening this way, and yet the gospel is advancing. Then he goes, he goes on to share the second reason. He says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul says, I'm sharing the gospel, and then the word is spreading through the imperial guard, but other Christians in this area are, are kind of inspired by my example and what's happening to me, and they are, are stepping it up and preaching the gospel with more boldness and with more courage without fear. And so Paul sees the gospel advancing in this way. Now, Paul is not just uh, looking at things through rose-colored glasses. He, he understands the reality of, of what is happening to him. He understands even the, the reality of this gospel preaching that's happening, that it's not happening perfectly. Uh, he's concerned about the motives of some of the people that are preaching Christ. In verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. See, Paul knows enough about human nature. Paul knows that even regenerate believers can sometimes have sinful motives underlying the good deeds that they're doing. This is true of the preachers in Paul's day. This is true of myself. This is true of you. Now, we want to be clear here that Paul is saying that these people are actually preaching the gospel. And he is, he is not saying that these guys are false teachers. They're pre preaching the true gospel, the right gospel, but with the wrong motives. You can contrast the way Paul talks about these people with the way he talks about the preachers in Galatia. He, he, basically says that they are accursed because they are preaching another gospel. They're not preaching Christ. They were preaching Christ plus the law equals a salvation. And so Paul is not concerned about the content of what they're teaching, but he is concerned about their motivation. They seem to be uh, um, envious of Paul in some way. Paul says that they're preaching out of selfish ambition and pretense, almost as though, as though, with Paul being in prison, if they make him look bad, then they can somehow look better. Again, Paul isn't too worried about this. Paul says, you know what, if they want to make this about me, if they want to make this about them, they need to understand this is all about Christ. And so that's why Paul concludes. He says, you know what, at the end of the day, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. He is rejoicing, joyful suffering for the sake of the gospel. He's rejoicing because the imperial guard has found out about Jesus. He's rejoicing because all of these other preachers are going out, even though some of them are going with the wrong motives. Paul is 
rejoicing. What has happened to Paul has really served to advance the gospel. Now, what if, loved ones, what if what is happening to us right now, the fact that I'm standing alone in my living room and you're watching this in your living room or at your kitchen table, we're unable to meet together for worship and teaching and fellowship. What if what is happening to us were to really serve to advance the gospel? What if in the same way that a Roman soldier would never go into a synagogue to hear Paul preach, what if people who would never actually walk through the doors of 77 to 55 10th line start to hear the gospel because we're actually not allowed to meet at 77 to 55 10th line? What if the link to this YouTube channel has been, has been sent far and wide? I mean, we're getting contact from East Asia, Northern Ontario, British Columbia. What, what if the gospel were actually to advance in this time? I hear people saying, well, you know, the government can't shut down the church. The government hasn't shut down the church. You can't shut down the church. The The church can't be stopped because Jesus can't be stopped. The gospel can't be chained. It can't be restricted. It didn't get stopped when Paul was in prison. And it won't be stopped because Jesus is king. Again, to quote Pastor Marvin McCudi, you can't stop kingdom growth because you can't stop the king. And so what if we were to look at what was happening to us right now? Again, it's so different, so far removed from what Paul was going through. But if that could advance the gospel in Paul's life, what if it could advance the gospel for us? And what part can we play? And in the same way that the soldiers would have observed Paul's care for them and care for other people and his kindness and his courage, what if on Zoom calls with our coworkers or in conversations with our neighbors, if we were to demonstrate that same level of courage and care and kindness and point people to Jesus Christ in this season so that the gospel would advance. You see, Paul was joyful because he saw that even though he couldn't go anywhere, the gospel was going everywhere, and that caused him to rejoice. So Paul says, I will rejoice in verse 18. He's talking about present tense, and then he says, yes, and I will rejoice, talking about the future tense. Paul says, I'm rejoicing right now, but I will rejoice even more in in the future. And Paul uh, knows that, that his future is is uncertain, and that's what he talks about uh, next. So if you're taking notes again, we have a joyful suffering for the gospel of Jesus. That was the first point, and here's the second point. Joyful living or dying for the glory of Jesus. Joyful living or dying for the glory of Jesus. Paul says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul says, "I I know that you're praying for me, Pastor Chris last week walked us through chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, this great prayer that Paul prayed for the church. We're going to pray about that during our prayer meeting tonight. But he's saying, saying, listen, I'm praying for you, but I also know that you're praying for me, and I know that your prayers are going to be answered, that this is going to turn out for my deliverance. That word deliverance, the Greek word is soterios, where we get our word salvation from. It can be translated a deliverance. It can be translated salvation. What is Paul talking about here? It seems like when you first read it that he's saying, I know that because you're praying for me and because of the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to be delivered from prison. I'm going to be set free. But when we read it closer, when we keep reading in verse 20, it says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all, at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
Paul doesn't know if he's going to be delivered from prison. He doesn't know if he's going to go on living or if he's going to die. So what does he mean by this phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance? Well, we need to understand that the Apostle Paul loved the Word of God. He loved the Old Testament. He loved God's Word. And he could hardly open his mouth. He could hardly write a paragraph without alluding to or quoting or referencing a passage of Scripture. And that is what is happening here. Paul is quoting word for word Job chapter 13 verse 16 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. That very same line is there. This will turn out for my deliverance. Let's look at the broader context of Job chapter 13, verse 15. Job says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. And then this is the part. This will be my salvation. You see, what Paul was doing is really what we're doing. We are reading Paul's story, putting ourselves into his shoes and and thinking about how he thought in the midst of his circumstances and applying that to our lives. But Paul was doing that with Job. Paul was looking back at the story of Job in the same way that we look at Paul's suffering and say, our suffering is nowhere near compared to what Paul was going through. Paul was looking at Job and his suffering and saying, this can't even compare with what Job went through. Job had these friends who came to him and and they initially came to comfort him and for seven days they just sat there and they said nothing and then they started to open their mouths and it all went downhill. And these friends of him started to accuse Paul saying that the reason why all these, sorry, accuse Job, the reason why all of these things are happening to you is because you must be a sinner. You must be hiding some sort of secret, heinous, evil activity that no one knows about. And and you, you can't say that you're just suffering innocently here. And so there's this back and forth dialogue between Job and his friends. And then Job says in Job 13, 15, he says, though he slay me, he says, in light of everything that's happened, all of the people that have died, all the financial loss, all of the tragedy in Job's life, Job says, even if God, who allowed all of these things to happen, even if God were to kill me, he says, I will still hope in him. And then he says, yet I will argue my ways before his face. You see, Job knew that even though his friends were all judging him and saying, you must be bad, you must have done these evil things, Job says, you know what? I want to present my case before God because I know God is the ultimate judge. He knows me better than you know me. He knows me better than I know me. He says, I'll argue my case before his face. And he says, this will be my salvation. You see, Paul was about to stand before Caesar. He stood before the governors, he stood before the tribune, and he has appealed to a higher power, but he knows that his case is really ultimately before God. And it doesn't matter what Caesar thinks about him, whether he should live or whether he should die. His deliverance is what God thinks about him. He doesn't care what these other preachers who are going out trying to make Paul look bad so they can look good. He doesn't care what they think about him. He is trusting in God's deliverance, trusting in God's a salvation. And Paul wants to be delivered from something in particular. He wants to be delivered from being a coward. Read again verse uh, verse, uh, 19. He says, "This, this will turn out for my deliverance. And then into verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
Paul wants to be judged as courageous and to be come before God as judge without having any reason to be ashamed, fulfilling the mission that God had given to him. Then look with me at verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is why Paul could have so much joy. He could have so much joy because he was living for something greater than his own life. He treasured Jesus more than life. He knew that death was gain because death did not mean that Christ was taken away from him. Anything else that we gain in this world is taken away from us when we die. But if we have Christ, we have him even more fully when we die. If we are to live, to live is Christ. It's belonging to Jesus. It's becoming more like Jesus. If we're to die, it's gain because it's being with Jesus in his presence. Then Paul kind of riffs on this idea. He, he says in verse 22, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul says, well, what if I had the choice? He knows he doesn't have the choice. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. But he's saying, what would I prefer? He says, well, to die is gain. He said, to depart and be with Christ is far Better. That's what he says in verse 23. Paul's kind of playing that game, would you rather? Do you ever play that with your friends next time you're on a Zoom call with your small group or your, or your friends or coworkers, you could try this game where you, just, you describe two scenarios and you have to say, would you rather? Would you rather have a vacation in the mountains skiing and snowboarding or on the beach uh, sun tanning? Would you, would you rather have lobster claws for hands or a tr- an elephant trunk for your nose? Paul is kind of playing this game, would you rather? My youngest son, Boaz, likes to play this game. He doesn't quite get the nuance of how the game works. He says things like, would you rather be in a dark cave surrounded by vicious wolves or would you rather eat ice cream with your family. I think I chewed ice ice cream every, every time. You see, that is far better. That's how Paul understood living versus dying. But he knew that God was in control and he was trusting that whether he were to live or whether he were to die, Christ would be honored in his body because he treasured Christ more than anything. He says in verse 24 that it's necessary on your account that he would remain Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And then he says in verse 26 that they may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Paul expects to be able to come to them again. He's not being morbid. He, he knows that death could happen, but he has this hope that he's going to actually be delivered. He does have this expectation that he will get before Caesar, that he will be tried, and he will be set free and have the opportunity to return to them. But notice his rationale. It's not that he has a bucket list of things that he wants to do before he dies. No, he says he wants to do it because it's necessary on their account, because he wants them to glory in Jesus. You see, when you become a follower of Jesus, when you live for Christ, you simultaneously begin to live for others. 
You don't live in fear of them. You don't live to try to impress them. You live to serve them. And one of the things that happens as the Spirit begins to work in a person's life is, is that natural instinct for self-preservation and self-promotion and self-accumulation, that instinct is put to death. And then selfless service begins to flow. God is a giving God. We were brought into this world as takers, but God is a generous, giving God. And when his spirit lives inside of us, we want to give of ourselves. We want to serve other people. And so this is a, a real challenge for me right now, living at home with my family, trying to work and trying to do family things, trying to serve the, the, the church and the staff team, is how can I give? Not just, not just how can I protect or preserve myself, but how can I consider others more significant than myself, which is what Paul is going to be talking about in, uh, in chapter 2. But notice what he says in verse 25. He says, I want to continue with you. He says, for your progress and for your joy. So joy again. He said, I, I rejoice in verse 18. I will rejoice. And he wants joy for himself. And he wants joy for the church at Philippi. So joy is all over this. But also notice the word progress. That word progress is the same word that's translated advance in verse 12. So this idea of advancement and progress is at the beginning of this section and advancement and progress is at the end. You see, when we talk about the gospel advancing or progressing, it happens in two ways. It happens outwardly. I mean, the Imperial Guard is hearing about Jesus and other people are more bold to preach about Jesus. So the progress is happening outwardly, but the progress also happens inwardly. That the believers of, G of Jesus in Philippi would take the gospel and its implications, what's true about who Jesus is and what he's done, and have that flow through their very lives. And that results in joy. Paul wants them to experience joy. Joy in knowing that the gospel is progressing outwardly and joy in understanding the way that the gospel is progressing inwardly as well. You see, joy is something or joy is, means having something worth living for. It's having something worth dying for. It's knowing someone who died for you. Knowing Jesus Christ who came to this world, who suffered and died. He is the one who can give meaning and purpose to our life. He is the one who is the ultimate treasure that whether we live or whether we die, nothing can be taken from us. Paul here takes his hands wrapped in chains and he shows us his hands, but not for the purpose of just seeing his chains. He lifts up his hands wrapped in chains and he points to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says, look to him. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Last week, one of the great heroes in the contemporary faith uh, passed away, Ravi Zacharias, the great preacher and apologist and uh, evangelist and uh, educator. And he died at the age of 74. And if you know his testimony, he tried to take his life at the age of 17. He couldn't answer the question, to live is... All he wanted to do was die. This life had become so meaningless and pointless. All of his pursuits academically or in athletics had accumulated to nothing. And in despair, he tried to take his own life. 
And God miraculously stepped in, sent someone to him as the gospel was progressing, as the gospel was advancing in India. Someone came to him and shared the gospel with him. And listen to these words of reflection as Ravi Zacharias thinks about the difference that Jesus made in his life. He said, I am persuaded that God alone, the grand weaver, knows our future and knits our lives. He has brought lasting change, not only in my own life, but my family as well. Sometimes this happens seemingly instantaneously, hearing Jesus' words in John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live, literally brought me back from the brink of death in a hospital room to new life. Only Jesus could legitimately and multi legitimately explain the multifarious strands of human personality locked within me. He could explain my emotional life, my actions and my reactions. He could explain why I longed for human touch and why it was actually the touch of soul that I was ultimately after. Without Christ, I would, I would have the gnawing undercurrent that it had run through every, everything in my life and that had led me to the tragic choice that very nearly brought me to an end. Jesus wasn't just the best option for me. He was the only option. He provided the skin of reason to the flesh and bones of reality. His answers to life questions were both unique and true. No one else answered the deepest questions of the soul the way he did. And because Christianity was true, it was emotionally experienced. There was no greater example of this than in my life. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Rabbi Zacharias lived for Christ and he's died and it's gain. The Apostle Paul lived for Jesus Christ and he died and that was gain. What are you living for? What are you pursuing? I want you to uh, think as this hymn is being sung over you right now, that the hymn is called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And it vividly describes God's all-encompassing, life-transforming love that he showers upon us in Jesus Christ. And as we think about this passage and its implications for our lives, let me just read to you the third and fourth verses. It says, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and trust the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Let's sing this song together now. I am persuaded, I am persuaded that God alone, the grand weaver, knows our future and knits our lives. He has brought lasting change not only in my own life but in my family as well. 
Sometimes this has happened seemingly instantaneously. Hearing Jesus' words in John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live, literally brought me from the brink of death in a hospital room to new life. Only Jesus could legitimately explain the multifarious strands of human personality locked within me. He could explain my emotional life, my actions and my reactions. He could explain why I longed for human touch and why it was actually the touch of the soul that I was ultimately after. Without Christ, I still would have the gnawing undercurrent that had run through everything in my life and that had led me to the tragic choice that very nearly brought me to an end. Jesus wasn't just the best option for me. He was the only option. He provided the skin of reason to the flesh and bones of reality. He answers to, he answers, his answers to life questions were both unique and true. No one else answered the deepest questions of the soul the way he did. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Ravi Zachariah has lived for Christ and he has gone to be with the Lord. He has died and that is gain. The Apostle Paul lived for Christ and he has gone to be with the Lord. He has died and that is gain. Loved ones, what are you living for? As we close the service today, Jameson's going to lead us in this old hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. It describes this treasure that we have, that we can live for and die for. Listen to the third and fourth verse. It says, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground their blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Let's sing this beautiful old hymn together.